This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 30 in our series for 2014, and today's date is Friday the 8th of August. And Leon, what's on the schedule for today? Well, Gary, we have a fantastic interview with Alec Gardner. He's the General Manager of Advanced Analytics for Teradata Australia New Zealand, and he's talking to us all about big data. And then we have a chat with economist Saul Eslake all about the mining industry and the downturn in mining and what it means for the Australian economy. But let's, first of all, talk to Alec Gardner. We're talking today to Alec Gardner, who's the General Manager, Advanced Analytics for Teledata in Australia and New Zealand. And Alec is um, like Moses coming down from the mountain away. Uh, He's got seven golden rules to ensure the success of a big data project. So, Alec, greetings. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Alec, uh, tell us, what are these rules? I mean, what should businesses be doing in regard to big data? I think big data and um, uh, particularly new interaction data presents a a great opportunity to improve analytics, um, to better understand customers, to better understand uh, operational processes, and to apply analytic techniques, existing analytic techniques, and uh, and some new ones that have been brought to bear, and um, apply those to look for service improvements, better customer engagements, um, and, and better efficiency. So it's certainly a, a very popular and well-hyped topic, uh, and most organizations are starting to you know, roll up their sleeves and gather teams together to start to look at what the, uh, the opportunity is with, with big data. Uh, and I think the challenges are um, finding the return on investment and, uh, and some of the rules, certainly the first rule that we, we see is, is understanding and, and having an idea about what the return on investment, what the hypothesis is to the outcome you're looking for. So you have to kind of start with an end in mind. It may not be, the, uh, it may not be where you end up with a project, but certainly the first rule is to uh, is, is start, with a, start with a hypothesis and start with an end in mind. So investment means that you've got to spend the money to get the benefit, basically, and it's not cheap, is it? Well, the investment is people, um, and uh, people is one of the most expensive aspects of it, and it's the most important aspect, really, because you're, you're looking with analytics to inform decision makers. Um, so there are, you know, you need people who can look at data, interpret it, apply mathematics to it, and then understand the uh, uh, the value that it will bring to the to the business. So the the investment is often, you know, putting a uh, putting a team of people to uh, to have a look at some new data, mine it, add it with existing data, and understand if there's value in it. Um, and one of the challenges is how quickly can we how quickly can we answer the question: Is there value in this particular piece of data? Should we be looking to capture it and uh, and apply it to our uh, business as usual processes. So, what are the other, what's what would be some of the other rules? The, the temptation is with with big data is to um, just just capture a new stream of data, uh, and it could be social data, it could be web traffic, uh, it could be capturing call center um, recordings or or, or text. Um, and often people capture that and then look at it in isolation. The the value comes from having an enterprise story. So being able to 
um, take this new form of data and add it to your existing transactional data. So we talk about um, a lot of the new data being interactions. So how do people how do people browse on the web? Um, how do people you know call in and, and have a conversation with uh, with us? We want to mix that with the transactional data, with the reference data about the customer. So the second rule is, you know, don't ignore the fact there's an enterprise story here, and that big data uh, has its most value when it's integrated with uh, with your existing data. I'd imagine that would be quite critical in an organisation that might have different departments, like sales, like finance, like HR, customer service. Yes, absolutely, because you need to have a consistent and um, consistent engagement with your customers, and also. You know, one particular stream of data may infer uh, a customer's view or position, and actually, you want to be able to, you know, triangulate that and uh, and have context uh, with uh, with with the data. And you need data from different sources, from different departments and divisions. Talking about the customer experience, which, according to a recent survey, is high up on the list of Australian businesses. Um, Getting reliable customer feedback would be a problem, wouldn't it? It's um, it's not a it's not a problem. I mean, most most major Teradata customers, most of Australia's biggest companies, do get regular customer feedback. They a lot of them use the uh, Net Promoter Score uh, system, and they measure customer customer sentiment and customer um, uh, feedback in in that respect. But um, there are so many new channels now where we can where we can get customer opinion uh, through social channels, as I say, through call centers, um, and being able to bring that data and uh, and integrate it with the actual transactions as to what our customers have done. From that, you can apply analytics and and, and understand the customer's experience um, and see, you know, the journey that a customer has gone on uh, to to get to an outcome. Now, now, what what would be another rule the company should go for? So I think I mentioned at the beginning. It's a um, uh, the great thing about um, uh, about big data is it's born out of uh, the the changing way we're engaging. Um, we have a very um, different perception on how organisations should know us and should see us now because because of the, the way we engage with them, often through digital channels. We expect companies to know us. We expect retailers to be able to recommend products to us. So the interesting thing about big data is not the data, not the technology. It's about, it's about the analytics. Um, and uh, the, the third rule that we have is, is it's not a technology project. It's a business project driven by analytics. And another rule? Analytics have to be have to inform decision making processes, and often, you know, that'll be people. So there's a lot of noise in the um, uh, in the marketplace in the world of big data about a skills shortage for a domain or a, 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 a principle called data science. So there's a lot of there's a lot of hype out there about how there's a skill shortage of data scientists. I don't necessarily buy into that. I think. The reason why we're so concerned about the skills is because we're not being rule number three, the previous rule. We're treating it as a technology project, and we're trying desperately to find people that can use some new, exciting, and relatively complicated technology. Technology needs to step up and become as consumable and easy to use as possible so that business analysts who exist within our customers now, people who understand the operations of the business so that they can they can 
get hold of this new data, get hold of these new analytic techniques. So rule number four is making sure that you enable your skilled business analysts to be able to become data scientists. So you provide them with technology that's consumable and easy to use. So that really essentially means asking the right questions of the data you've got in there. Yeah, and and giving that data and that capability to the right kind of people as well. So, you know, the I'm a former maths teacher, and and you know, there's long since been a relative shortage of mathematicians and statisticians. So you're looking for people who do understand maths and statistics, and um, uh, and universities are really stepping up at making maths and statistics courses relevant to modern business. So you need people who understand the maths and the statistics. You need people who understand the business. The other element of people that the, the element, other element of, of the DNA of the people you want is you want them to be a good storyteller. You want them to be an agitator or a challenger, somebody who's not going to accept the norm uh, and is constantly going to keep looking for the new, the next question, the next challenge. And again, that's the that's to rule number four: ensuring you have the right people and the right data scientists. And another rule. It's much less sexy than data science. Data, I don't, data science was sort of put in Harvard Business Review of the sexiest job of, of the 21st century. Rule number, rule number five is, the, uh, is much less sexy. It's more around the governance process. But it is ensuring that you build the right support structure to operationalize the great work that these data scientists, that, that these new analytic techniques will bring. So you do need to be able to to say, well, if I get this data in and I let someone play with it, when they find something insightful or interesting, how do I build that into my operational process? How do I understand that if a customer has experience A, B, C, and then D, they're very likely to, to buy a new product or, or, or something similar? So you've got to have the, the operational processes and you've got to have the data quality and the data governance and the infrastructure in place to be able to support it. So. You've got to have a, a, an architectural view of, of, of how you're going to implement these new analytic techniques. And also, and this touches your next rule, you need to be aware of the way business has changed in the last decade or the last five years. Yes, uh, and that engagement model, the way that, you know businesses are coming to market in so many different channels nowadays, um, and increasingly digital and digitized channels, which is creating more and more data. Um, so data is coming at us from every angle. It's, um, it's messy, uh, a lot of this new data, um, and there are new techniques for being able to capture and process that data. Um, and they're being, you know, they're being invented all the time. So we've had traditional SQL for a very long time. Uh, we've had MapReduce technology come out of Google, um, and we've got the resurgence of graph analysis for network analysis and things like that. So these are... These, are, um, these new techniques are coming on board um, at an alarming rate, um, almost as much as the, uh, the, the new data is coming at us. So you've got to have a, um, an open architecture that lets you pick up the best of the new breeds of techniques and, uh, uh, and, and technology and be able to embed them within your existing business process. And uh, that, that sort of leads to the last point, uh, the last rule, which I believe is, means you have to actually involve the entire organization in it. Yeah, our most successful customers really do get this. Um, you know, they 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 don't just um, start with one department or one type of, of of business manager. They encourage the agitator that I mentioned before, but they realise that 
that a lot of the time you can start with a, an analysis about a customer's experience in, within marketing to, to understand how well we're servicing a customer and trying to, trying to get a, a positive outcome with that customer. Understanding customer behavior, once you start to see patterns of behavior, you can then start to see fraud. So we often see marketing analysis and fraud analysis coming hand in hand. Um, you understand then how your customers engage with you, um, how you service them. So we see a lot of operational business processes um, uh, uh, being brought in. So call center improvement, staff training. Um, so it, it comes across the whole of the organization. So ensuring that the you know the, the the whole business understands that you're embarking on this this new analytic journey uh, and and getting ideas and insight for new types of data, new types of questions, I think is paramount. Alec, how far down the business food chain can this go? Because it seems to me that a small to medium company, say with a couple of hundred employees, would find analysis of their customer data just as um, valuable to them as a major bank. That's exactly right, yes. So um, it's, analytics are applicable to almost every, every business in every industry. There is no, there's no size limit. Um, and even the complexity, I mean, you know, the, we've, we've got a, if you think there's a, a growing number of online businesses who are relatively small in terms of, uh, of numbers of people, but the data they're capturing and the analytic opportunity that they have is quite, is quite broad. So there isn't, um, there isn't necessarily even a correlation between numbers of employees and, um, uh, and opportunity for analytics. Alec Gardner, thank you very much. And one last question. We're really at the beginning of this, aren't we? We're seeing the, uh, we're seeing the early adopters move beyond the beginning. Uh, as I said at the beginning, there are lots of organizations who are starting to roll up their sleeves and ask the question. But I think it's really exciting. I think just as technology is developing so quickly, I think the appetite for analytics is as well. And we've got uh, we've got some really good examples locally of, of businesses who um, have found their agitator or they've found their compelling business case, and they've really been able to to drive ahead with analytics. So, you know, there are a uh, uh, there are a, a good number of Australian businesses and a and a good body of um, professionals within within those companies who have who have grasped this, and I would say are are are, are on the path rather than being rather than just being at the beginning. Alec Gardner, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alec. Thanks. And now let's talk to Saul Eslake about the miners. Saul Eslake, there was a report last week showing that uh, mining executives are very gloomy about their future. Some ninety three percent are very very down and not very optimistic. What's your view about the sector? Well, that needs to be seen in the context of where the mining industry has been over the past decade. We've been through the biggest mining boom in Australia's history, at least since the Victorian gold rushes. But that boom peaked some years ago, and since the middle of 2011, commodity prices are down by more than 25%. The construction phase of the boom, which was by a wide margin the biggest out of any commodities boom we've had, including the Victorian gold rushes, peaked in 2012, uh, has declined gently since then, and will decline very sharply from next year onwards as the 
major LNG projects are completed. During that time, Australia has become a very high-cost country for mining, exploration and development, and it's becoming increasingly apparent, as the Newport report suggests, that there simply won't be any new major mining projects started in Australia in the foreseeable future. What does that mean for the prospects of the mining industry? Well, it means those projects that are now in production, who have long-term contracts or relatively low cost bases, and that does include the major mining companies' iron ore projects in the Pilbara, as well as the six LNG plants that are now under construction in Queensland, Northern Territory and Western Australia, uh, will make a lot of money, although most of that money will flow overseas to the offshore shareholders who on average about 80% of the resources sector. It does, however, also mean that uh, there won't be many more new mining projects coming on stream. That will diminish employment opportunities for people who've done very well out of the resources sector in the last five or six years. And depending on what happens to the prices of our major mining commodity exports, uh, mining revenue will decline from a relatively high level, and that'll have implications for the revenues of state governments for whom mining royalties are an important component. And also the federal government. Uh, Yes, although less so given the mining tax introduced by the previous government hasn't produced anywhere like the revenue initially foreshadowed. But of course, the federal government collects significant amounts of revenues through company tax from mining companies. And while those are at a high level at the moment, uh, the likelihood is that they will decline over time. Precisely by how much, of course, depends on the extent not known to the general public of how much mining company tax collections have been reduced in recent years by the large depreciation provisions that those companies have been able to avail themselves of. That means there's going to be a decline in government revenues. Uh, well, it means government revenues will decline, will grow at a lower rate than they might have done otherwise. I mean, Treasury has been advising the government for a long time of prospective falls in mining prices. Uh, In fact, as it's turned out, the terms of trade, ratio of export to import prices, has in recent years fallen faster than Treasury had advised. Uh, But the the broad profile of what will happen to tax collections from mining companies is not going to come as a surprise to the government or the Treasury. What will the decline of the mining sector mean for the Australian economy? Well, let me be specific about what we're talking about declining here. The volume of mineral exports, and I include in this exports of gas, is going to rise quite strongly next year. In fact, it's been rising quite strongly this year as projects that have been under construction in recent years move into their operational phase. That will boost measured GDP growth. But because the mining sector is 80% foreign owned, a great deal of the income generated by that increased output will flow to offshore shareholders. And because the mining industry in its operational stages is very capital intensive, the total amount of employment directly and indirectly associated with the resources sector has begun to decline and will decline further over the years ahead. And what impact would that have on the economy? It depends on which measure of economic activity you're looking at. The impact on real GDP, the volume of goods and services produced in Australia, will be positive 
That is to say, we'll have faster growth in GDP as a result of the mining boom moving into its production and export phase than we would have had without it. But the contribution it makes to domestic income and employment is now turning negative. So you would see unemployment increasing as a result? Yes, although that's only partly because of job losses directly and indirectly associated with where the resources sector is now going. But more importantly, unemployment will, in my view, continue to rise because the transition away from growth led by mining investment to growth led by other sources of domestic demand is happening more slowly and at a lower rate of overall growth than had been hoped for when this transition first got underway. Where do you see unemployment tracking? I mean, beyond 6%? Uh, yes, in my view, the unemployment rate's going to get to six and a half, six and three quarters percent by the end of 2015. And how much higher it gets will also be influenced by whether or not people continue to drop out of the workforce, as they've been doing at a notable rate since the financial crisis. And while it's commonplace for some commentators to ascribe the decline in overall participation that's masked the weakness in the labour market to the ageing of the population, in my view, the greatest source of declining participation rate is declining participation in the workforce among people under the age of 25. Some of that can be explained by increased participation in the education system, but I believe a lot of it is an understandable reaction to the decline in job opportunities for people in the 15 to 25-year age group. So that people have just given up? People have just given up, and unfortunately I don't think the changes to the arrangements pertaining to unemployment benefits proposed by the current government are going to alter that very much at all. In fact, it could make it worse. Well, one of the things that concerns me about what the government is currently proposing is that requiring people who are unemployed to write 40 job applications a month or to submit 40 job applications a month when there aren't a lot of jobs for them to get is going to increase the burden on employers who want to do the right thing by people who apply for jobs, just answering them, telling them there are no jobs available. And the fact that people who are unemployed will be getting more rejections will probably further depress their morale. But the the reality is that there are some parts of Australia where there aren't simply aren't the jobs. I mean, if you go to a place like Launceston, for example, there wouldn't be 40 jobs for each person unemployed. Uh, That's true. And uh, that's, I think, true of a lot of places across Australia, not just areas with historically high unemployment, such as the northern part of Tasmania. I think you'd find that in much of uh, non-metropolitan Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, for example. And it may become more the trend in Western Australia as well as the mining boom unwinds. The mining boom has attracted a lot of foreign investment into Australia and it's also kept the dollar quite high. What do you see happening with the dollar and foreign direct investment? Well, that's a very important linkage in my view. Uh, My explanation for why the currency has been so resilient in the face of a 25% decline in commodity prices from the peak in mid-2011 and with the decline in interest rates in Australia since November 2011 is that there's been very substantial inflows of foreign capital both into Australian government bonds and to finance the volume of mining investment that's gone on. And if you add those two up, they've been enough to finance the current account deficit almost twice over. 
I think those inflows of foreign capital will wind down very sharply from the beginning of next year onwards as work is completed on the six LNG projects. And in my view, that's going to result in a significant decline in the Australian dollar of perhaps as much as 10 to 15 cents from its present level over the course of 2015. So you could see the dollar actually going down to 80 cents? Absolutely. Our forecast for the Australian dollar is that it will end 2015 at 80 cents. And that would be no, not necessarily a bad thing for the overall economy. Well, there'll be many parts of the Australian economy who will regard this as belated but nonetheless very welcome relief. My sense is that they will be more cautious in responding to a depreciation of the exchange rate than history might suggest because after the numerous experiences in the last six years when the currency has fallen only subsequently to rebound, I think the manufacturing, tourism and other sectors who want to see a lower exchange rate will nonetheless also want to satisfy themselves that it's going to stay down after it falls next year before they respond in a positive way to that development. We also have to say, of course, that a fall in the exchange rate of that magnitude will lift the price of imports and Australian-made goods that compete with imports and thus will add to inflationary pressures so that if the dollar falls, as I expect, during 2015, the likelihood is that that will generate upward pressure on interest rates in 2016. So, like thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Thanks for having me again. Well, what do you think, Leon? Well, it's, uh, it's actually quite a sobering uh, analysis. And now the news, Leon. How's the world tracking these days? Well, the big news is that China's official non-manufacturing purchasing managers index fell to 54.2 in July. That's down from 55 in June. And the sub-index for services fell from 53.2, fell to 53.2 from 53.5 in June. And that's a sign that all's not going well in China, as well as that the HSB China Services Business Activity Index dropped to its lowest point since the series began in July, and the index printed at 50 in the month. That's a sharp drop from a 15-month high of 53.1 in June. And that's that's quite a worry, and and it's so it's just sitting at fifty, Gary. And anything above fifty indicates expansion, and anything below it indicates contraction. So China's just sitting there. Basically, it's flat, isn't it? It's flat, mm. and uh, so it's not a good sign from the world's growing economy. The other interesting piece of news is that Moody's has raised Greece's credit rating by two notches, citing improvements to the government's finances and its commitment to further gains. And Moody's sets its new rating for Greece on CAA1, and that's up from CAA3. Look, it's still well in junk territory, but it's a significant mark of progress because a country is emerging from the crisis, Gary. Very slowly, but it is on the way. Yes, and uh, Moody's says it's expecting Greece's debt burden to peak this year at 130 79% of GDP, would you believe? And then it's going to start falling as the economy begins to expand. But, I mean, they've still got a hell of a debt burden. That's right. But there's some bad news coming out of Europe. The Italian economy shrank by 0.2% in the second quarter, dragging the Eurozone's third biggest economy back into recession. German manufacturing orders surprisingly tanked in June as geopolitical risks weighed on orders. And the country's economy ministry said orders fell 3.2%. And... Uh, uh, that is quite massive. British factory output rose at a weaker pace than expected in June, reflecting weak performances from oil and gas extraction and the manufacture of textiles, chemicals and plastics. And the Office for National Statistics said manufacturing output rose just 0.3%. That's only 1.9% higher than it was a year ago. Still, it is on the... Uh 
green side of the ledger, really. Yeah, but... Only just. Only just. And uh, the other interesting piece of news too, Gary, is that Portugal is going to inject 4.4 billion euros, that's about 6.6 billion Aussie, into the crisis hit Banco Espirito Santo, which recorded first half losses of... 3.57 billion euro last week and there were fears of a catastrophic bank run. Now the country's third biggest banking group is going to be split into two entities a bad bank and a good bank. Yeah, one with all the bad debts. That's right. The toxic assets are going to be isolated in the bad bank. The healthier assets regrouped in a new bank, which will simply be called Novo Banco. And Novo Banco will be controlled by a resolution fund set up by Portugal's banks as part of the conditions for the 2012 national bailout by the Troika of the European Union. Yeah, well, it's maybe a good idea to get get all the ugliness into one place and shove it under the carpet. But there's some good news coming out of the US. Uh, US services firms grew at the fastest rate in more than eight years in July. And that's the latest sign the economy is picking up speed in the second half of the year. And the Institute for Supply Management says the service sector index jumped to 58.7. That's up from 56 in June. And that's the highest reading, would you believe, since December 2005, Gary. That's very good. It's also, in a sense, good for China too, because the retail will probably pick up a little bit. Absolutely. Meanwhile, in Australia, our trade deficit has narrowed more than analysts' expectations as the impact of weaker iron ore and coal prices continue to be felt. Uh, according to figures from the ABS, the nation's trade deficit narrowed a season adjusted 18% to 1.683. Inflation appears to be off to a soft start, following uh, allow- and, and the TD Securities Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge rose by 0.2%. It rose by 2.6% in the 12 months of July. And, and that's why the Reserve Bank of Australia this week kept the official cash rate on hold at a record low of 2.5% for the entire year. Yeah, still, we're pretty close to the 3% uh, threshold, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, still, it's still it's sitting there at uh, 2.5%, the interest rate, and while inflation is where it is. Retail sales have rallied, swing back into positive territory in the month, coming ahead of expectations. ABS figures show retail sales inclined to seasonally adjusted 0.6% in June to $23.197 billion. And that's good. Uh, and that follows a fall of 0.5% in May, which was the lowest point since December 2013. So it's looking up. Job numbers have risen for the second month in a row. According to um, the ANZ, job ads on the internet and newspapers rose 0.3% in July and were up 4.2% for the year. So that's a good sign. It is indeed, but it's still behind the actual population growth. So it's still got an unemployment problem in there. At the same time, business confidence has hit its highest level in 11 years, according to Dun & Bradstreet. 46% of businesses expect higher sales in December. Only 9% predict a fall. And the services sector was the most optimistic about sales. But the Australian Industry Group figures show activity in the service sectors have continued to contract in July. And the AI Group's performance of its services index rose to 49.3 points in the month. That's compared with 47.6 in June. Mm. And so it's still below 50. And so that's that's a big problem. Mm. And uh, new figures show business expectations have weakened following the release of the May budget after touching the highest level in four years early in the year. And the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Business Expectations Survey for June shows the expectations index sinking towards a key 50-point mark. The employment index eased to 45.4 points in June. That's down from 46. So that's a bit of a worry. Mm. And there's another alarming report from the Boston Consulting Group, and they're saying Australia is facing a 
potentially disastrous labour shortage, Gary. Yeah, I noticed that. It, it's, it's weird. They're saying we're, what, a million, going to be a million short by the end of the decade. Well, they're saying to 2020, Australia's projected annual average labour growth is 1.03%, which is more than double the forecast for the UK at 0.5%, well above the U- US at 0.72%. But Australia's surplus of 500,000 workers will swing to a deficit of 300,000 workers by 2020, and that's projected to balloon to a deficit of 2.3 million workers by 2030. Yeah, well, it's theory. I think I'm, I I can't see that uh, particularly. It may it may be, but you'd, the economy would have to grow enormously uh, to to accommodate this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, Penfolds is going global. Gary, Australia's best wine, Australia's biggest listed wine company, Treasurer of Wine Estates, is considering a new takeover proposal led by US consortium uh, Colbert Kravis Roberts, and uh, they originally offered three point zero five billion. And uh, now uh, they're offering $3.4 billion. And so the, the Board of Treasury Wine States issued a statement to its shareholders or urging them not to dismiss the offer. Meantime, on the periphery of that, you've got a fight in China over the brand names. That's right. And, and that's right. And Australian wine. Yeah. And there's a guy, two brothers, smart brothers, sitting on the Chinese names of, the, of uh, Penfolds and uh, some of the others. That's right. And meanwhile, Australian gaming mogul James Packer is taking another crack at the lucrative US casino market and Crown Resorts has bought a vacant site on the famous Las Vegas Strip and Crown has established a joint venture resort company to develop the site with former Win Las Vegas president Andrew Pascal with financial backing from US private equity Oak Tree Capital Management and Packer Scrap now we all remember Packer Scrap plans to develop a $5 billion casino in Las Vegas with private equity partner York Capital in 2008 when the global financial crisis hit mm. and Crown wrote up about $44 billion in the process and they lost money on investments but now they're coming back yeah and las vegas is still uh, pretty i mean it's been through through a bit of a doldrum but see you know americans still like to gamble absolutely all the profit figures are out and in the year to june toll road operator transurban recorded a statutory net profit of 252.2 million that's up 44.5 percent yeah, partly because they didn't pay very much tax. They only paid $3 million. Yes. That's right. And, and, um, and, of course, they have a $6.8 billion debt. But, you know, Gary, all the interest you pay on debt is tax deductible. And in the year to June 30, down the EDI posted a profit uh, uh, of $250.95 million. That's uh, up 0.2%. Cochlear made a net profit of $93.7 million, uh, to June 30, and that was down from $132.6 million a year ago. So, And that's a bit of a worry. Yeah, well, it was below what the analysts thought, thought they'd make. And that's it for this week, Gary. Great, Leon, and um, we'll be back next week. That's right. Next week, we've got a terrific interview with Lysandra Stevens from All Collections and Naomi Ingleton from the Myrtleford Butter Factory. And they're going to be talking to us all about how they use social media to grow their business. Yeah, indeed, they do it wonderfully well. The Myrtleford Butter Factory is really something. It, it's, a, it's a tiny little company run by a family. And it's got a global business. That's right. And, and But they do it all through the internet. They all do it through the internet and through social media. And they don't advertise at all. No, nope, not at all. And so it's going to be fascinating. So that's it for us for this week. In the meantime, stay safe. Have a great week. And you can tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Take care.